The Muslim call to prayer we're hearing in the distance reminds us to turn our minds to God. But at this very moment, we're standing on a hill overlooking the remains of a Greek temple that towered over a tiny Christian church. This was an iconic moment, the crossroads of faith we'd come to witness. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be, and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. The incredible majestic columns behind me are what remains of the Temple of Artemis here in the city of Sardis, which was also one of the seven churches that's mentioned in Revelations. I think it's a nice contrast to see both those giant columns, which were part of a huge society, and then right below it, there's this little brick building that you might think, was this the kitchen for the priests? What was that? This was a Christian chapel built in the 500s. And so when I think of John writing to the saints in Sardis, it was just a small group. And even in the 500s, that's all the building that they could put together. And that was recycling the materials that were left from the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. A whole different kind of conversion. Welcome to our second episode in our special 10-episode series about Turkey as the crossroads of faith, both ancient and modern. I'm Stephen Cat Perry. In this episode of In Good Faith, we dive deeper into the history of Jewish life in Turkey, including an interview with Avram Savinti, a leader of the Jewish Community Center in modern Izmir. We'll explore Sardis, the site of an ancient synagogue, the largest in the country, and examine statues of the goddess Artemis outside of Ephesus to better understand the larger society that existed around the Jewish population. Let's draw a map of where we are. We're on the southwest coast of Turkey. Today, the modern city of Izmir hosts a marina and a harbor. There are streets of carved Roman stone right next to skyscrapers of glass. But within driving distance is ancient Ephesus, We'll spend lots of time here in an upcoming episode, but today we want to talk about Greek and Roman mythology and how that impacted the Jewish people living in the area. And we'll visit an immense synagogue in Sardis. To help us with the historical timeline, I talked to Luke Drake, an assistant professor of classical studies. Dr. Drake completed a PhD at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in ancient Mediterranean religions and a Master of Theological Studies in New Testament and Early Christianity at Harvard Divinity School. Alexander the Great comes in in 333, so now the Greek Empire, and this is then run by a set of Greek kingdoms. Eventually Rome will take over in the middle of the second century. They'll conquer, some of it will, they'll inherit pieces of Turkey, and then Rome becomes a Christian empire. And so then uh, Turkey's history gets wrapped up in early Christian history. Constantine wants to have a second and eastern capital. He chooses Turkey. Byzantium, he renames it Constantinople. This now becomes a, a central place for early Christianity and especially later Orthodox Christianity. I think in the contemporary imagination, Rome looms large, but you look at particularly in the first and in the second and the third centuries, the earliest Christians, Turkey is central to the history of Christianity. It's this region where you get a vibrant sort of Christianity exploding mm -hmm. in our earliest literature. You're eventually going to come up with what we call the, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, but Constantinople remains this sort of Roman, the centerpiece of Rome for a very long time. Dr. Drake explains how Jews and Christians, both monotheistic believers, would have been social outsiders in the polytheistic society of ancient Rome. When we went to Ephesus, we saw the remains of statuary and temples dedicated to emperors and deities, and one of the most important of these was the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. 
To understand the significance of the Temple of Artemis, it's it's helpful to understand the importance of Ephesus. This is an important city, 150, 250,000 people there. And one of the common features that you see in Greek city-states and then that are then taken over by Rome is it's very frequent that they'll have a patron deity, right? It's a deity that's special to the city. Athens has Athena. Rome has Jupiter. Ephesus has Artemis. And it's a real relationship. The God takes care of the people and the people take care of the God. This is like a family. We look out for each other, right? The gods take care of us and we take care of the gods and we have a special God. Artemis Ephesia. And you look at her iconography, uh, she's not a huntress. She's upright in a skirt with jewelry and these round protuberances all over her. She's a goddess of fertility, right? And she's special to the people. One way that the people demonstrate how special is they create this temple of Artemis. The temple has a history. It's built, it lasts for 800, 900 years or so. It's, it collapses, it gets burned. By the time you get to the Roman period, it's at its height. This is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's massive. 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet tall, 127 columns. This is a place when you're talking to wealthy friends, where should we go? You have to go to Ephesus and you have to go see the temple that's been dedicated to, to Artemis. Yeah. As people are converting to the Christian faith, they bring with them their religious experience of the past, right? And so you do see tendencies to read their Christianity in language that isn't fully distinct from your former pagan practices. So even the idea of Jesus as sacrifice or prayers as offerings, right? You see this in early Judaism and early Christianity. When the Jewish temple is destroyed and we have no more animal sacrifices that go up to heaven, what do you do? Well, your prayers become those sacrifices. Early Christians do the same. You stop offering up animals to get the attention of the gods. Instead, you offer up your heart or a hymn. You can see why there would be Christian persecution. It's not just about difference. In a way, in the ancient world, difference is fine. You could worship Artemis Ephesia, and then you go to Rome, and they're worshiping Apollo. You worship. Difference is not a problem. It becomes problematic in the eyes of some of these ancient people. Christian comes in, is that you're not worshiping the patron god. And so if it stops raining when we need it to rain, who's to blame? You know, maybe it's the people who aren't, who aren't paying dues to our patron god. Or if you have emperors who seen as gods and you now have a group of people who are not willing to pour a little bit of wine in honor of the emperor, well, that feels treasonous. Here I was in the museum outside of Ephesus. We went there to find two statues of the goddess Artemis because they've been collected and dispersed around the world. We got to the museum early and parked near some orange trees, then walked down the empty sidewalks and waited in the cold morning for the security guards to let us in. One man tried to sell us some hand-carved flutes. Finally, threw the security into a dimly lit museum with the exhibits sharply lit by white spotlights, which made the statues of Artemis striking. A stark white goddess in the gloom of modern Izmir. Though sculpted from white marble, these are not your classic Roman statues of human figures. Artemis stands larger than life, wearing a city for a crown. Her chest is covered with dozens of round objects. And she's costumed in a floor-length skirt covered in symbols like honeybees. It's almost impossible for a modern person to understand what we're seeing. You need a guide. Luckily, we had our guide, Lufti Bedar, to explain what we're seeing. So this is an agricultural area. We have uh, the mother goddess, uh, Artemis, symbolizes fertility and many children. Mm. Having a good harvest season, which means good many fruits. And she has some animals on her as well. As you see, the necklace is grape and the queen bee is symbol for uh, the city too. So everything the city had, people thought they owed to Mother Goddess Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the wonders of the ancient world, but it no longer stands, which is humbling when we consider the greatest accomplishments of the most powerful empires have fallen. 
Yet a tiny minority of people who were oppressed and dismissed by the powerful still exist today. Their stories, their winding thread of a heritage, continues to hold them together. Their faith helped them survive as a people. We're talking, of course, about the Jews who saw all this come and go and are still there today. How did they maintain their separate identity while also being integrated into society? Who were the Jews in this area and how long have they lived there? We talked to Dr. Avram Shannon for help with this question. Dr. Shannon is an associate professor in ancient scripture. He earned a PhD from Ohio State in ancient Mediterranean religions and a master's in Jewish studies from the University of Oxford. The Jews, the Israelites, were never great travelers the way, say, the ancient Phoenicians were, right? We don't find them in the earliest periods. They were, they were very, very, again, focused on their center. But in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the um, king of the Neo-Babylonians, destroys the Jerusalem temple. And suddenly, there's actually, it's a huge shift. What happens is, so of course, Nebuchadnezzar takes some of them to Babylon. This is what's called the Babylon exile. And so they begin to spread where there's a group of them that go into Babylon. There's a group of them that goes to Egypt. But even, even over in Babylon, we read in the Bible how Cyrus, the Persian king, brings them back to Jerusalem, but only a fraction go back. Most Jews actually stay in Babylon when they come back. And then we see them spreading other places, especially as we get Alexander the Great, because of course with Alexander, so everything's been Eastern focused in history in the empires, but Alexander moves from the West there. And that's when we start seeing Jews move into Turkey. About 300 BC, as Alexander spreads Hellenistic empire, we see not just Jews, all kinds of peoples spreading across Alexander's empire. So it's intriguing because Part of the, the ancient ideology in terms of ancient religion is, at least originally, there's not a lot of reason to enforce religious conformity, right? When you live in a polytheistic world, what's one other god among, among many? Right? It's, actually, it's actually really only for Jews, and then later Christians, but only for Jews that this is really a problem. For our Greek friends, for the Persians before them, even on some levels for the Neo-Babylonians, as long as you acknowledge that their God is best for the Neo-Babylonians, it's okay. And so Alexander actually has a fairly hands-off religious policy, as long as they're offering prayers for the empire. In at least the earliest periods, we do not find widespread persecution, although textually we find a fair bit of contempt for, for Jewish religious ideas. Jews are often described as mythanthropic because they only worship their one God. But basically anytime anybody's a minority, there's gonna be problems, right? We'd like it to not be that way, but human history tells us that there's always going to be difficulties. So when Alexander's empire breaks up, you get, again, these various successor states. Up in Turkey, you have the Seleucids, and things are okay under many of them, but the problem always when things start to go bad you start to look for a scapegoat. So one of these, again, Anatolian kings, Antiochus IV, actually he produces this specific oppression of Judaism. He is one of these kings who defiles altars. It seems like his original goal is just to get them to just be a little bit more integrated. So there's this concept called Hellenism. Hellenism comes from the word for Greek in Greece. And so Alexander had this really great idea. He said, what if not just spreading our empire militarily, we spread it culturally? What if we make everybody Greek in addition to whatever else they are, and then everybody will be Greek, and it'll be awesome. And he does this. So he establishes Alexandria, he establishes Greek cities all over, right? Antioch, one of these great cities up there, in it's Antiochus. It's founded at this period as these kind of Greek cities. And sometimes when people talk about some of the struggles that Judaism and the diaspora, even in the land, um, face in this period, they frame it in terms of Hellenism versus Judaism and whatever. The question is not whether or not you were Hellenized, even for Jews. The question is how Hellenized were you 
And what are your lines in the sand? They all spoke Greek. Greek becomes, in this period, a, a Jewish language. And so you find a lot of cultural, it's, it's not even fair to call it assimilation. It's just, just living. So they become, in some sense, Greek, in some senses not, and that's where the tensions are, is trying to decide where and when and how Greek we can be and how Greek we cannot be. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Present-day Turkey is a place where everyone passes through on mm -hmm. the way to either conquer someplace else or trade someplace mm -hmm. else. So these Jewish communities in the area, they find themselves over time being ruled by Alexander, being ruled by the Romans, mm -hmm. and then come the various incarnations of the Turks. Mm -hmm and crusaders go through. And all this time, it's just amazing to me how they hold together. Before the foundation of the State of Israel, since AD 70, there has never been a majority Jewish population anywhere. They have been historically, they were the perpetual minority. They tend to be relatively powerless in the communities that they're embedded in, and it's, and they're useful scapegoat. There's all kinds of things in this fraught historical relationship. But with that has given them impetus to hold and stay together. Diaspora really refers to this notion that we don't belong here. This is our home. This is where we live. This is where we are. This is who we are. We are part. We speak the same languages, go to the same schools. We do so, so many of the same things. We eat the same, we, we shop at the same, we, we do things together and different, but our home is somewhere else. In many ways, that dialogue, that back and forth, we're here, this is who we are. We speak these languages. And you find Jews tend to create their own distinctive dialects of the language they're speaking. So in, in Turkey, they actually spoke a variation on Greek. And in many ways, that's what we're looking for as we read these things, where they're there, they're integrated. But here's something else. Here's this other identity that whatever else is happening, this identity is laid on top of it as well. And underneath it and throughout it, and it becomes this really complex discussion. And really, that's how they stick on, is whatever else, wherever else, whoever else, they're Jews. They're God's people. They're the people who keep God's law. And so even though they were far away, it was really important to them where that was. What was that relationship? Was there like, we'll hear from headquarters or we, were we all independent synagogues? The temple gets rebuilt, right? So it's destroyed in 586 and then rebuilt. And you begin to have a question. This, this is in some ways the diaspora question. How do you be Israel when you're not in Israel? Right? And in many ways, all of it builds and moves around this idea of what does it look like for us to be Israel when we're not in Israel. And the temple is a key part of that, partially because, like most ancient religions, Israelite religion is fundamentally sacrificial. The primary religious thing you do is you sacrifice. In some ways, you could describe the temple as being everywhere absent. Right? Like it's everywhere in what they do, but it's not always in their practice. And it's clear that there are responses where they say, okay, we need new ways to deal with this, new ways to, to understand this. Jerusalem's still at the center in his thought, but it's no longer about sacrifice, it's about prayer. And actually in Greek, one of our most common words for, for synagogue actually means prayer house or the prayer place, because prayer suddenly becomes a central part of the worship of Jehovah. So in these circumstances, you have synagogues, you mm -hmm. have enclaves mm -hmm. of Jewish people, and they are told scripturally that in many ways they should be separate. Everything from marrying within the faith mm -hmm. to entering each other's homes mm -hmm. or dietary guidelines. Mm -hmm. But they also are scattered everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you, how did they hold together who they were at the same time is coexisting mm -hmm. with all these 
other faiths and other cultures? Mm -hmm. It depends. One, of course, is something like a synagogue, right? We have a place where suddenly that becomes the center of a community. When you're a minority community and a majority community, you have a place where you build around. And synagogues are key for that. They become a place, a place for Jewish identity. To Not be. just for worship, but education. Just for education, meetings. for meetings, for, for this is a place where undeniably this is a Jewish place. And so you have a Jewish place wherever else you are. In some cases, they just, they adapt. In some cases, they syncretize, right, as part of that. We find them using, using pagan imagery sometimes. There's a whole slew, and this is in the land itself, not just you know, outside of it, but there's a whole slew of synagogues in the Holy Land where they have Helios, or what looks like Helios, in, in a chariot surrounded by the Zodiac, as mosaics on the synagogue floor. Like this is the primary decoration of the floor of the synagogue. And it makes you say, okay, so what are they doing here? There's something about this symbol that to us looks incredibly pagan. Say, no, that's a Jewish symbol. So part of it is this ability to, and we see this all across history, this ability to incorporate and appropriate and think through and make these things yours, right? They, they call themselves the Romoniote Jews. They're able to do this, and then this becomes a, a part of their identity as much as anything. And so we all realize that identity is really complex. And so are there some things that make them separate, but there are all these other things that are very clearly part and parcel of integrating, right? The answer to your question of how do they do this is they didn't. They just integrated. The idea that we are Jehovah's people, we are God's people, that stays and that keeps them together as they work through their various difficulties and times, integration, not integration, this constant conversation between how much do we assimilate, what does that look like, how much do we retain. I wonder if you'd talk to me about the remains of the synagogue in Sardis, which I understand is not only one of the very big ones, but one of the oldest in the area, or the oldest. It's the oldest we found in Turkey, yes. The evidence suggests actually that the Jews appear first in the Anatolian Peninsula, so what is now Turkey, in Sardis. And we were talking right after Alexander. And the fact that it's so large and so well appointed tells us that there's a fairly large Jewish community in Sardis at this point. The approach to the synagogue makes clear how integrated the Jews were in Sardis. We walk past the remaining foundations of wealthy merchant shops. It was a bright, sunny spring morning, and I walked into the space where only the walls remained. Though underfoot were beautiful geometric mosaics that still show their bright reds and blues. The excavators of the site have added a protective ceiling where swallows fly through the space. We entered through the courtyard, and then there was a huge gallery where people would have worshipped and gathered together. The city of Sardis is the site of this beautiful Jewish synagogue. If we think of the area around Jerusalem and we think of Romans and Jews, we think of oppression. Here's a situation where they were such an important part of the community, 10,000 Jewish people here at the height of its civilization, that this synagogue is actually a gift from the emperor to them, which just shows us how integrated they were and how important they were to this society, the Jewish community. Those ancient Greeks and Romans have now become Christians for the most part. But the Jewish tradition has helped them maintain a separate identity outside of the civil society they were part of. If you think about it, simply having a yearly Passover or a weekly reading of Torah on Shabbat, all of that can maintain an identity. And perhaps the fact that these were a minority people helped them stick together and keep hold of that identity. Most people would love their own religion to spread, but when that happens and your faith becomes the state religion, are you in trouble? Do you need a little outside pressure to remember your observances? Turkey is home to modern Jews as well. And in fact, since the time of the Sardis synagogue, there have been two major waves of Jewish migration to Turkey. I had the chance to speak with Avram Savinti in Izmir. He's a Sephardic Jew and a leader of the Jewish Community Center in that city, and he invited me to speak with him in one of the newer synagogues. 
proving that Jews still remain important to the cultural life of this area. We arrived at the synagogue on a Friday afternoon. Izmir was preparing for the arrival of President Erdogan and the whole city was full of traffic, people all hoping to see him. We walked through the white stone streets with shops and restaurants, then took a right to see the synagogue, a very modern square building of pale granite. We were buzzed through a thick metal gate into a small courtyard. The gate behind us was required to close before the gate into the building could open. An important reminder that even in a nominally secular state, religious minorities still have to take precautions for safety. We were welcomed by the board of the Jewish Community Center who graciously ushered us into the synagogue. Avram Savinti, Shalom. Shalom. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me too and for the community members. You're the president of the Izmir Jewish Foundation, right. the Community Jewish Foundation, and we appreciate being able to meet here in the synagogue today in Izmir. I wonder if you would tell me how Jewish people first came here. I would like to start with Sephardic Jewish people because the majority of the Jewish people, they came from Spain. In the end of 15th century, let's say about 1492, they were expelled from Spain. And at this time, uh, European countries, they didn't want to accept those Jewish people. But the Ottoman Sultan II, he accepted the Jewish people, even they sent ships to take them. Mm. Maybe 150,000 people, they came from Spain to Istanbul and they went to all over Turkey. So your family has been here for 500 uh, years? Yes, yes. My father's family side, they came directly from Sevilla to Turkey. And my mother's family side, they went from Spain to Portugal first, then they went to Holland, Amsterdam, and then they came from Amsterdam to Turkey. So we are Sephardic. The second, we call them Romaniot, from the Roman Empire time. I suppose you have to visit Sardes and the synagogue. So those people are the oldest one that live here, even the Turks came to Anatolia in the Roman time and Greek time. And the third kind of people, they are Ashkenazi people, they are not Sephardic. They came from Poland, from Russia, because they had a lot of problems in those countries this time, pogroms, etc. And I can add the Mizrahis, I don't know if you know the, the name Mizrah. Mizrah in Hebrew means east. So those people, they are on the east, south of Turkey, cities of Gaziantep, Urfa, Diyarbakir, mostly population on what are now Kurdish population. And they are here from Babylon time. They are also very old communities. But now I think they are not anymore Jewish on those uh, part of Turkey. You mentioned that there were 25,000 here in Turkey. Where did they go and why did they go? At the beginning of the 20th century, Izmir was a very cosmopolitan city. There was a lot of Greek people because four years Izmir was on the Greek occupation between 1919 until 1923. So they used to have a lot of Greek people living here. Some Armenians, like 10,000, and a lot of Levantine people. Levant means, in French, it means East. Mm. So those people were European people 
coming to the East, uh, to the Ottoman Empire, to make money. And there were something like 20,000 Levantine people living in Turkey. So it was a mixture. Of course, um, the majority was Muslim. And then after the World War I, and they left. The Greek people left, but the Jewish people, they stay in Izmir. They didn't leave. They begin to leave just with the foundation of Israel state. Because there were, let's say, pro-Israel, but there was also the economic situation because it was after the Second War and Turkey was not a part of the countries that fight, but the economic situation was very bad. And especially the poor people, uh, it was a hope for them, Israel. And as Israel at the beginning, it was a socialist country. It was not like now. So they pushed the people to come. I remember to each people who came to Israel, they gave them an apartment. And when you go from Turkey or from any country to Israel, you didn't have to pay taxes. So they, they pushed the people. So that's why about 60% of the people living in Turkey, they went to Israel. With the foundation of modern Turkey, what did the Jewish people think about Ataturk and what he did in establishing modern Turkey? Uh, I will tell you they are very positive. I mean, during the war with Greece, almost all the Jewish were on the Turkish side. Even the chief rabbi uh, at this time, Haim Nahum, they call him Nahum Efendi in Turkish, mm-hmm. He went to U.S. for collect money for the Atatürk movement. Mm. And even after the foundation, it was in Lausanne, in Switzerland, there, there was a conference between the major countries like France, England, of course, Greece and Turkey. This chief rabbi, he was one of the members of the Turkish delegation. So I can say easily that they were pro-Ataturk, pro the modern Turkey. What I think is a miracle is that until 1948, until the establishment of modern Israel, there was no homeland. And yet, scattered all around the world, Jews held on to their identity. Does that amaze you? Uh, yes, it's a miracle. It is. And we own a lot to the pioneers like Ben Gurion, mm. Herzl. Of course, it was very hard to build this country, but uh, it's a reality. They celebrate, I think, the 75 years of the, the state of Israel. It was two days ago, and I am happy. Two questions. One is, what is the size of the community today, the Jewish community, that would come to your synagogue? In Izmir, we have about 1,200 Jewish people living in this city. And in this synagogue, every morning, at uh, every night, there is a service. But before 80 years, it used to be a very big Jewish community living in the city. We have 12 synagogues. It used to be the Jewish quarter. Only in the Jewish quarter, we have nine synagogues. So unfortunately, there is not enough people going to these synagogues. So I think uh, there is a service in four of them, in Shabbat, and special days like Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, etc. How do you maintain a sense of identity with that community? Uh, it's a good question. We have a Sunday school. 
We have a club for young people. We have a club for women over 60 years old. We have a club for men over 60 years old. We have a lot of clubs. And maybe one important point is we used to live around this area. 90% of the Jewish people, they live in this area. They know each other. And we have a lot of events. So they, they come to the events. Why, why is it important to maintain that identity, that people don't forget where they came from? Uh, it's important because the Jewish people, after the destruction of the Second Temple, all the Jewish people were dispersed all over the world. And the only manner to survive I think it was first the religion, because there were religious people, and second, uh, they tried to maintain the Jewish identity. So otherwise they couldn't survive for 3,500 years. It's a lot of time. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. You mentioned the destruction of the temple in the year 70 and the dispersion. Do you feel still a connection to Jerusalem, even without the temple? Of course. In almost all our prayers, we used to say Jerusalem, and especially in Passover, it's... The tradition is the first night we have the Passover dinner. And uh, during the prayer, and we pray God and saying that the next year will be in Jerusalem. So it's, Jerusalem is the symbol of Judaism, let's say. When you go to Jerusalem yeah. and you go to the Kotel, the Western yeah. Wall, what do you feel there? I feel that I am Jewish. (laughs) I feel really Jewish and a lot of emotion Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a symbol, a symbol. And every time that I go to Israel, and I go often once a year, sometimes twice a year, I used to go to the Kotel. What brings you joy about your Jewish tradition that you're part of? What do you love about your Jewish heritage? I love quite everything because I think that Jewish people, they bring a lot of things to the civilization. For example, let's say the 25% of the Nobel Oscars, they went to Jewish people. It's it's not normal because there, there are only 14 million Jewish living in the world. That's it. So A very high if percentage. You, if you compare with 7 billion people living on the earth, it's a very small community, but I think they did a lot. When you look at uh, what doctors, uh, musicians, all really people that they give something, So you will see a lot of Jewish people. It's the reality. I try to be objective, but it's the reality. (laughs) Does Shabbat mean something special to you? Yes. Can you tell me about that? I don't used to go to the synagogue very often. Normally, a Jewish has to go every day to the synagogue, or at least on Shabbat. I'm not going, but I'm going in special days the holidays Mm. and those kind of things. And as I am president of the board, I have to visit on Shabbat uh, the synagogues. They found a way to get you to come. Yes, (laughs) yes, that's right. And so I go, but not every Shabbat, but let's say one or two times per month. Mm. And I have the feeling that Shabbat is a special day. 
Normally, you don't have to drive a car or you don't have to have electricity, you don't have to talk on the phone, a lot of the elevators, etc. I don't know, I don't do this, but I know that Shabbat is a special day. Turkey is a place that has changed civilizations from Greeks to Romans, the Persians, yeah. the Ottomans. Mm. I'm curious, in your lifetime here, have you seen the treatment or the relationship between Jews and other faiths? Has that changed or what is that like? In my life, I can say easily nothing changed. There is two big, let's say, difference. One was during the Ottoman Empire, 600 years for us as Jewish, let's say 400 and something. So, of course, a lot of things change because the Ottoman Empire was full of different people, different religion, and etc. And then with the Turkish Republic 100 years ago, for example, before the Turkish Republic, during the World War I, almost 25% of the population of Turkey, they were non-Muslim. Mm. And now the non-Muslim, they represent nothing. We have about 60,000, 70,000 of Armenian, let's say 15,000 of Jewish, and that's it. Maybe some, we call them Surianese. I don't know how they call them in English. But it's less than 1%. It means that during the Turkish Republic, it was always the same thing. We are, we are very good. We are free to go to the synagogues, to have relationship with the other religions, like... Christians, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox. We have a lot of those kind of Christians in Turkey. And we are in very good relation with the government, the local municipality. I can tell you that all the Jewish people from Izmir and especially from Turkey are comfortable. We have no problem for going to synagogue or practice our religion. I don't know, maybe you saw at the entrance the police station and we are protected by the police 24 hours every day. Here we are better protected than other countries. So I feel comfortable. Turkey is the last Muslim country where Jewish people are living in good conditions, they are free to practice their religion, and so on. We are, I would say we are happy. I'm very happy to hear about the Jewish community being in a good situation here in Turkey. What do you think would help people of different religions understand each other better? I think Izmir can be an example for this. I think you have to respect each other. Uh, That's it. If you respect each other, you can be Christian, you can be a Muslim, uh, you can be Jewish, or you can be atheist. You don't have any religion. I have a lot of friends. They don't believe in God. So what? If they don't believe, they don't believe. I have, for example, we have a reunion every uh, Friday. We used to have a lunch. A lot of people, maybe 12 we were today, and in these people, they are Muslims, they are a lot of Jewish, they are Christians, and we are always, every Friday, we are together, and we respect each other. And that's it, I think. I think that's it. Yeah. We chose Turkey, as we said at the outset, because this is a crossroads of faith. It's like a layer cake upon layer cake of 
uh, Christians and you dig down deeper and one group that has been there through it all has been this thread of Judaism, which to me has had a remarkable survival. To me, our visit to the ancient Jewish synagogue in Sardis and knowing the thread of history that has kept them as a community ending up in a modern-day synagogue has really been an interesting journey. And I'm speaking with Heather Bigley, our senior producer, who has helped put together this trip and been to all these places. Were you surprised when we started researching how long and how much there had been a Jewish presence I think I'm like the average American when it comes to turkey. Before we really started doing the research, I didn't know a lot. I had eaten donor kebabs in France when I lived in France, and that's what I was really excited about. And then I started doing the research and seeing not only do we have a Jewish community that exists there from the time of the Romans and the Greeks, to hear that the Ottomans welcomed Jews during the um, Inquisition and that uh, the nation of Turkey welcomed Jews during the Holocaust. And I was just shocked by the numbers. You know, when when Avram Seventi said 150,000 Jews were welcomed into Turkey, that that the Ottomans sent ships to bring them there. Yes. Uh, You know, it was one of those things where I thought, oh, we have a lot to learn here about how to help. And even earlier, I found it really compelling to learn why people of a monotheistic religion living in an area might be of concern to the people, Greeks or Romans, who had a whole array of gods and specifically a god of their particular city. That whole idea that, well, it's not raining. Who's not make, Who's not doing the right stuff for the right. goddess? And they're like, oh, it's those guys. So yeah. it's not just we don't like what you believe. It's like you are putting our livelihood and lives at risk. Yeah, Luke Drake uses that word treason. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's very strong. <laughs> this is treasonous. Um, and I, I had, that had never occurred to me before. We were talking today about all the way from Jews who were exiled from Babylon and then have stayed in that area right. to other migrations coming in. The whole idea that there was a Jewish diaspora. It wasn't just here in this Anatolia area that became Turkey that they survived as a distinct people. It was all over the place. They had a way of maintaining their identity. And then they finally, in the 1940s, have a homeland. They return. And so you're thinking, well, that's why a lot of people from Turkey left. The population of Jews in Izmir, for instance, even though it's still a big center, is much less. But there's the advantage today that, as Avram Savinti said, that they can go and they can visit several times a year and then go back and maintain their society and their home where they live. I think the thing that I learned to really reflect upon is how different the ancient mindset is from today's mindset. Mm. Um, and and in different ways. Like, one, I think you've pointed out, we tend to think that when we go forward, we can become better people. Uh, <laughs> that we just <laughs> are more, uh, I don't know, open-minded or more loving or more um, forgiving in some way um, than the ancients. But I don't think that's true. I think we we saw in Turkey and, and in our historical research different places where that obviously wasn't true. But also this idea that they just had a whole different way of conceiving of the universe. And I think many of us, um, you know, we kind of see like, oh, you're religious or you're not. But really what I saw was anciently everyone believed in a deity or in multiple deities. One of the great things was how welcoming uh, the board of directors of the Jewish Community Center were when we arrived in Izmir. And in fact, um, they had already heard of BYU. They knew who Brigham Young University was because in the 1980s, there'd been a small dancing group that had come through. Steve, you should tell the story. Well, a troupe of singers and dancers called the Young Ambassadors, and they included the wife of the current U.S. ambassador to Turkey, Cheryl Flake, who we heard from, and also my wife, (laughs) who was not then my wife. But it's just interesting, these these little connections that we'd meet people. Oh, we saw people from your university. And that's one of the blessings of, of travel and also 
of just sort of intercultural exchanges. Yeah. And we had this great conversation. You know, these Sephardic Jews escaped Spain during the Inquisition, and they talked to me how Spain in the last 15 years reached out to them and said, we're going to give you a Spanish passport now. Did you, were you there in that conversation? No, no, that's amazing. Yeah, they basically said, we're sorry. You can now have a Spanish passport. And of course, you can imagine what huge difference that can make in the life of a person to have a a European passport. Basically means you can go anywhere in the world, right? Mm. You can't do that with your Turkish passport. You can't do that with your Israeli passport. And, you know, I was just really touched at, it takes maybe a really long time, but sometimes we do we do the right thing after a while. Eventually. Eventually. We've talked about religion tied to culture, that when the Ottomans come, they're Muslim. It's not just a culture or a politics. There, There is God. There is story. There are sacred writings or wisdom literature. And I find that really inspiring that people find the need for that, and also find direction and solace, whatever their faith may be, in learning from those truths that were given. And I think when we start collecting some of those, we get a greater truth about ourselves as human beings, and I think even about our understanding of God. Make sure to check out our In Good Faith YouTube channel for videos taken on location at Sardis and Izmir. Many thanks to Luke Drake, Avram Shannon, and Avram Savinti for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, and Katarina Martinich. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Mitchell Towsley, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy In Good Faith, be sure and leave a comment on an episode or a review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith. <laughs>